Throughout scripture, the Christian life is often described as a race. As in this passage in Hebrews, it is a race in which we throw off the things that would entangle us and fix our eyes on Jesus, and we run that race with perseverance. The Apostle Paul would describe it as a race in which you focus so intently on the future, you forget the things that are behind and focus only on what's ahead and on Jesus and the final goal of attaining his glory and being with him in eternity. Whether Whatever the sport illustration is, and we've used a number over the last few weeks, whether it's racing, whether it's on foot, in a car, whether it is a football game, a baseball game, ice skating, whatever the race might be, whatever the competition might be, a critical element is to be properly outfitted. You need equipment to accomplish your task. You need equipment to accomplish your goal. You need equipment to win. And what a beautiful illustration we have this morning is these two young men have come this morning and have celebrated knowing Jesus and have celebrated being baptized in the congregation where everybody loves you, everybody cares about you, everybody's excited about you. Because tomorrow at school, when you start to tell somebody you got baptized this weekend, it may not be the same warm reaction. Here is safe. Here you start the race. Here, here the starter's gun goes off. Here is where you learn and you're coached to be properly equipped. And the Apostle Paul, when he talks about spiritual warfare to the church at Ephesus, he emphasizes, honestly, more than anything else in this section, the necessity of proper equipment. So that's where we're at. We're going to talk about being equipped. We're going to talk about the kind of equipment we need. We're going to talk about the things we need to do, the things we need to develop, the things we need to discipline into our life. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at those verses beginning in verse 13, where the Apostle Paul tells us, challenges us in this battle to be totally and perfectly equipped with the equipment that God gives us. And so he says in verse 13, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Well, what is the full armor of God? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches us and tells us. What do we tell these young men? You're starting the Christian walk. The starter gun has gone off. It is fired and you are up and you are out of the, you are out of the braces and you are moving down the track and you're headed towards a destination that God has in store, a calling that God has in store. How do you do that? How do you prepare for that? And the church becomes the outfitter. It is God's armor, but it is our responsibility to help know how to use it, help understand it, and help prepare and put these things into place. So in verse 14, he says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Now, Paul is not looking at an athletic competition in this passage of scripture. He is actually in Rome he is under house arrest, and he has a soldier immediately, like across the table from him, as he's dictating this letter and as he's sharing it with his friend Tychicus, as that all is transpiring, that soldier's right there. Chains, braces around the apostle's wrist attached to that soldier. And so he has the military mindset. 
He, he has the armor that an officer or a, even a front lineman would wear going into battle. And he begins simply with the belt. The belt is a critical piece of equipment. You have to have it. It actually holds everything in place. Everything else we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture is held together by the belt. And so that analogy carries through. And the belt in this case is truth. And of course, because this is the equipment of God, it is God's truth. It's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not a cultural trend. It is truth as God has expressed it and as God has shared it and as God wants us to embrace it. If you were with us last week, we talked about Jesus setting that standard down on the ground and saying, right here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus would speak one afternoon to his disciples and he would acknowledge again that he's the truth. And he would acknowledge to his disciples, to his students, that knowing him, knowing the truth, would actually set you at liberty. The adventure of the Christian life, making that decision to follow Jesus, making that decision to be in relationship with him, that adventure begins with truth. You may understand that from an emotional standpoint. You may understand it from an intellectual standpoint. A professor at Houston Christian University wrote the great book, The Case for Christ. And if you haven't read it, I would strongly encourage you to, from an academic intellectual perspective, as a, as a reporter, as an investigative reporter, he began to look at it and Lee examined the Christian life and he began to look at the attributes of the Christian life and the things that had been said in scripture as well as throughout experience in history. And he came to the academic intellectual decision. I must know Jesus. For me, Honestly, this won't be a real surprise to those who know me. It was a much more emotional decision. It was a combination of a series of events where about one week before I became a Christian, I recognized in a, in a new and in a fresh way that my life was, was headed. If I'm running a race, I am running a race towards disaster. I am, I am on a catastrophic pathway. And I realized something needs to change. And then in the process of that next week, God would begin to show that that something that needed to change was a relationship with Jesus. And so watching a classic movie, Ben-Hur, the book Ben-Hur is a great book to read. It's, it's advisable to any one of us to read. The book was written in order to help people understand how much God loves them and how much they need Jesus. And I came to a conclusion in one of the more emotional scenes as Jesus is headed to the cross to be executed and Ben-Hur attempts to hand him a cup of water because in the desert when Ben-Hur was a prisoner before he was a gladiator, Jesus had paused and walked from a well and handed him a water. Now that's fiction. That's not in scripture. You will not find it, but you'll find it in the book, Ben-Hur, in the movie, Ben-Hur. In that moment, I had this thought that I now know was inspired by the Holy Spirit. If that's who Jesus is, I want to know him. I can be relatively impulsive and I can know things in a brief moment. 
I looked out one night, I was preaching a revival, which is a series of meetings we used to do back in the day. And as I was preaching revival, I looked out and I saw this unbelievably gorgeous blonde. And I made a decision right then. I'm going to meet her. And I did. And I fulfilled my obligations as a speaker that night. I handled the invitation, the decisions, and everything. And as soon as I got the chance, I went and met her. I told the guy that was leading music, the worship pastor for that service, I told him that night, we were bunking together, and I told him that night, I said, I've met the woman I'm going to marry. And he said, yeah, right. May have even had some other things mixed in there. We were young at the time. And I said, no, no, I, I know this for a fact. So, you know, you can't know something like that. I knew it. As those who have known me for a while know the, the story, it took a long time to convince her. But I did convince her. And, uh, and she's still my wife today. And I'm thankful for that and, and grateful for that. It didn't take me a long time to analyze it. I knew. I don't know how I knew. But I knew. I, you know, there's every moment in life we're going to make decisions. And it may be an analyzed intellectual decision that brings you to a conclusion that Jesus is who he claims to be, which is the embodiment of truth and the only truth we need. And we accept him and we trust him. It can be a perfectly honest and legitimate emotional decision where we just suddenly come to recognize where we suddenly realize, oh, this Jesus, in the immensity of his compassion, is the one I want to know and be with forever. I, I would say probably four times out of five, when I talk with somebody and we stop and we pause and we pray, and we pray that simple prayer, Jesus, please come into my life. I want to know you. I want you to be Lord. I want to be in relationship with you. Forgive me of my sins. Secure me and take me into heaven and eternity. I would say easily four out of five times, it involves tears, emotion, is a legitimate means of decision making. So don't have somebody put you down because of that. Intellect is a legitimate way to make decisions. The reality is we make the decision that we trust in Jesus as the truth. And in that moment, we take that belt that is going to hold everything in place in our life and we put it on. And we begin to live. We begin to run the race. We begin to challenge the meat. We begin to rise up to the challenge ahead of us. We begin to face the battle with truth. In verse 14 again, he says, stand therefore with righteousness, like armor on your chest, protecting all the vital parts. That righteousness is not our great moral or ethical behavior. That righteousness is the righteousness you receive, I receive, when we trust Jesus. We don't have the capability to be righteous on our own. Ancestrally speaking, all the way back to creation, since the very first sin took place, we have inherited a sinful inclination. And at the very first opportunity, we sin. And that sin separates us and continues to separate us until if we do not address the issue of the sin in our life, we will spend forever, all eternity separated from God because that sin has now become the breastplate. It has now become the armor that we wear and that we're proud of 
even if it seems like we try to avoid it or put it down, the reality is we choose it over righteousness. But I can't be righteous in and of my own. This is, this is not armor I can craft. This is not armor I can make. This is not armor I can, I can produce. It comes directly from God. The truth is from him, so I buckle his truth into my life. The breastplate of righteousness is from him, and it's his righteousness living in us. The technical word for it from the scholarly standpoint is imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that has been taken and placed inside of us. When we literally invite Jesus to live in our hearts, he brings his righteousness with him. And it protects everything vital about our lives. And so we embrace it. I have the opportunity to mess it up, to dent it, to tarnish it, but I also have the same opportunity as Scripture describes it, to confess my sins, knowing that God will forgive my sins, cleanse me, and help me get back on track. His righteousness living in us. I, from the very earliest memories I have as a kid, I was told the importance of boots. I grew up with a mountaineer. I grew up, by the time I was six, I was climbing mountains. I was climbing rock cliffs. Um, I was backpacking. That was my whole life for the majority of it in those early years. And if I was told one time, I was told a thousand times by my dad, boots make a difference. It makes a difference what the terrain is. It makes the difference stabilizing on your feet. Later, as I became more technical and we were climbing at higher degrees of, of complexity, we had to change out. We couldn't wear heavy boots that we wore on backpacking trips. You had to wear light boots, little slippers, quite honestly, kind of weird looking. Um, so you kept them in your backpack till you got there, just in case you ran into somebody on the trail. But you needed the, the agile nature of those very thin-soled boots. Footwear is important. I know, I'm looking at all your all football and footwear. I'm not, it was a habit. I'm not going to say anything, so don't, don't get panicky. Don't worry about it. Footwear is important. And it's important when we talk about growing and maturing and living successfully as a Christian. Stand therefore, he says in verse 15, with your feet sandaled, because that's what the guard next to him would be wearing, is extensive sandals that literally laced up all the way up to the knee so that they were firm, they were tight, they were agile, they allowed him to move quickly, but also at the same time protected the soles of his feet in the midst of battle. With those feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. That's the message of Jesus. Be fitted, be prepared with the boots of the gospel, the good news. That word literally means good news. Gospel means good news. You might have troubles understanding or hearing it in casual conversation, and I'll be, I would actually encourage you. If you go back to the office tomorrow and you're talking to somebody about, hey, these young men got baptized, it was inspiring, we studied the scripture afterwards, and, and we worshiped because the gospel was changing us. Nine out of 10 of your coworkers Nine out of ten of your students have no clue what you just said. It's real simple. It literally translates as good news. The way we phrase it a lot, just because it makes sense, it is the message of hope that is found in Jesus. Christianity is not an introverted activity. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with introverts, and it doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert to be a believer. 
but we are called upon in the spiritual battle, one of our primary tools to overcome the activity of Satan and his minions that have come against us, one of the primary ways we can address that is by sharing the hope that is found in Jesus. And every single one of us has connections and friendships that we are the primary one that has the opportunity to share. You can, you can invite them to church. You can invite them. You can say, hey, I think you really ought to talk to the pastor about it. But nobody has the authority relationally with your friend like you do. Every believer is fitted and prepared to share the gospel of peace, the good news, the message of hope that is found in Jesus. And we take back territories. If we look back in verses 10 and 11, we heard how there are spiritual forces in heavenly realms that are everywhere. And these forces are opposed to the church. They are opposed to the truth. They are opposed to Jesus. And because we're followers of Jesus, they're opposed to us. We regain that territory every time we tell somebody who Jesus is, how to know Jesus, and what it's like being in relationship and we invite them into that life-changing relationship in that moment. Every time that happens, the kingdom of God scores and the kingdom of hell loses. Every single time. If you want to just really do some significant damage to Satan, then tell people about Jesus. He hates it when we do that. That's what makes it so much fun. I remember when Alexander was playing football. One of my proudest moments, may or may not should have been, so let me just go ahead and say that right up front. But we were playing another school that was about twice as big. Our, our football team here in Tombaugh at that time was about the shrimpiest football team you've ever seen. I mean, it was a whole team of Rudy's, and it was just like, you know, it was just, it was tough. But we went to state that year. One of these big, huge guys, and my son's not all that big, um, it comes up, and they're on the line together. Alex is on the offensive line. He's on the defensive line. And he looks at Alex. They're, they're getting ready to go. The line's about to break. And he looks at Alex and says, I got scouts here tonight. Let me take you out so I look good. Alex didn't even answer. He just, when the ball was hiked, hit that guy so hard and kept driving him, he literally pushed him into the opposing zone fence. I know. I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, you just told my kids that. But it was wonderful. <laughs> Winning is wonderful. Winning is great. And one of the best ways you, every single, you want to attack a demon, then tell somebody about Jesus and you just pushed them back into their zone. They lost ground every time somebody makes the decision to know Jesus. And we have the opportunity to share that. So we put on that belt. We live truth. We put on that breastplate. We let God's righteousness radiate from us and protect us. We put on those boots and we're prepared to invite others into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And we simply just do it one conversation at a time. Think about that conversation for just a second. The Apostle Paul is chained. He's got this guy across the table from him. He's writing this letter. He's actually dictating this letter to Tychicus. And in this dictation... That guard is sitting there listening to every 
count every word that's spoken. You talk about a heathen who already has the sentence written out for him, who already, it just doesn't stand a chance. There's no way he's going to get out of there unscathed. Be chained up to the Apostle Paul for however many hours their shift is. The Apostle Paul had this one-man activity to convert the entire Roman army. When we have those opportunities, take them and go for it. Tells us in verse 16 that in every situation we pick up and we take up the shield of faith from which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard a description. This is not the little round shield that they carried day in and day out that was more ornamental than actually helpful. This is a larger shield. It's about two and a half feet um, wide. It's about three to at least four feet high. It's solid wood. It's fastened with the leather, ha leather handles on the back. And they would literally brace behind it to protect when night arrows were shot. It was coated with resin that was, would, would push, extinguish it. It was coated with a leather cover on top of that so the arrows would sink into the wood past it and the flames would be extinguished. And that is how Paul equates faith. It is what we carry into battle. It's what we carry into our life every single day that allows us to conquer and be victorious over the temptations, over the insults, over the accusation that Satan wants to throw against us. And he will. Contemplating and making your home defense plan is a great idea. And a home defense plan that does not include faith is an inadequate home defense plan. Take up that shield of faith. Grow our faith. And the only way we can grow our faith, honestly, is by the stress of exercising that faith. I mean, every major athletic endeavor that we've talked about in any form or shape of anything requires the pain and the discipline of exercising, stretching, building the muscles. And depending on what you're doing, you do it for different purposes in different ways. If you're riding horseback, running barrels, you prepare one way. If you're figure skating, and artistically dancing on ice, you prepare another way. If you're playing football, you prepare another way. If you're playing baseball, you prepare another way. If you're a runner, you prepare another way. If you drive race cars, you prepare another way. Each and every single one of us develops the muscle groups and the athleticism that is required for what we're doing. And so it shouldn't be a real surprise to us that we are to develop faith, but faith only develops when you use it. You know, you'll get some help, some assistance by reading the Bible, by reading other books, but faith comes alive. Faith becomes elastic and meaningful and powerful and strong when you exercise it. And so this morning, when you were worried about all the things that could possibly go wrong today in the service, oh, you guys probably didn't worry about that, did you? I did. Josh did. I had to just simply stop and pray for a moment and say, Lord, you know it all, and you're going to help us get through it, and, and it's, going to be, it's going to be good. You're going to be worshipped. You're going to be glorified. We're going to learn how to live this life a little bit better, and we're going to be thankful that we have that opportunity to be together. That stretches faith. And then when you get here, and everything's not working the way it's supposed to, you stretch it a little bit further.
It's almost like you know, I, I, could, I could hear my football coach. You know, the, back in the 1970s, all of our football coaches were veterans from, Vietnam, from the Vietnam War. No pain, no gain. How many times have we heard that? That's why I personally avoid athletic activities because I don't like pain. There's no difference in my faith. If I don't ever get stretched, if I don't ever get stressed, if I don't ever have to push and stretch and reach for faith that's just beyond my limits, then I don't grow. But when I reach for that faith that's just beyond my limit and I get it, then the next time I find that my whole limit has moved and I can go to a different place and a different level. Take up that shield. We are going to need it. Because Satan is a liar. Satan is, is cruel. He is destructive in nature. And he will throw everything against us as Christians that he possibly can. He will create lies to us and about us. He will create temptations that we will have to face and deal with. He will create accusations over and over again. Read the scriptures. There are so many stories to make it so clear in Scripture. Satan is doing everything he can to destroy us and dissuade us from living our Christian life in a way that is evidentially effective and strategic in our community. Develop faith. It'll take discipline. It'll take practice. It'll take some pain and struggle. But when you need it, it'll be there. And I can say honestly because I live as a pastor oftentimes in other people's crises that every single one of us, no matter how young we are, no matter how old we are, every single one of us has a major crisis faith event on our horizon. So let's get prepared for it now. Let's take that shield up. Let's have it in place. Let's deal with it before it's too late. Verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation, our salvation in Christ. That extremely valuable piece of honor that protects the most fragile and frail of who we are. Physically, it's our head that needs protection. We understand that. Every single one of you grew up wearing helmets when you were on a bike or when you were on skateboards. Every single one of you. It's normal to you. It shouldn't seem abnormal to us that spiritually we need to protect the most vital part of our life, which is our head, which in this case, the Apostle Paul equates to our salvation. Now, our salvation was given to us by Jesus. We didn't do anything to earn it. And so it may seem odd that, that you should try to keep it in some way. All that means is you're growing and you're learning more, and the relationship is getting deeper. We understand this at a very basic level. You meet somebody, you start a conversation, you want to continue to get to know them better, you have more conversations, you spend more time with them, and then they eventually become your best friend. It's the same way with Jesus. You meet him, Ryan met him, Lucas met him, they made that decision, but meeting him this summer, getting baptized today, and then what you're going to be 30 years from now uh, as, a, as a young man leading a family, involved in your career and your vocational choices and making a difference in your community. You have to keep developing it. Grow deeper in that relationship. God has no intentions of letting us go. He holds us in the palm of his hand and he holds us so tight no one can remove us and we don't need to fear anything that might come against us because we are in Jesus. But get to know him better. 
and hold on and put that helmet of salvation on. And then the simplest and the easiest of all the armor. Take up in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which in case we don't know what that means, Paul gives us the answer, which is the word of God. There is a reason every one of our Bible studies studies, this may surprise you, the Bible. There's a reason every single worship service, no matter what it is, has at its foundation the teachings of the Bible. There is a reason that many of us spend an extensive amount of time studying above all other things the Bible. And it's not just vocationally so that we can teach next week. It's because this is how we live. This is our sword. It's the only offensive weapon in this list. It not only helps us defend ourselves, but helps us move forward. There is nothing we can do better for our spirituality than studying Scripture. And everyone in here is smart enough to figure out the best way to do that. Whether it's digitally or whether it's with a book, whether it's underlining or not underlining, whether it's in a Bible study. We're getting ready to kick all those off. All of our Bible studies, all of our small groups are kicking off in this next week. There's, there's activities, everything from, from marriage and relationships in marriage to, to finance and to specific books of the Bible. There's every option. But you have to take advantage of it. Some people treat the Bible a bit like a gun store. It's really fun to go to the gun store. I do it on a regular basis. I love to just walk and look down the racks at all the brand new guns. But until I take one off the rack and go to the range and practice, I am not a marksman, I am a spectator. The Bible calls us never to be spectators but to always be marksmen. I don't care how expensive your Bible is. I don't care how pretty your Bible is. I don't care where you place the app, on your iPad or on your tablet or on your phone. If you don't open it, it's a waste of time. And it's a waste of shelf space. It is designed to be implemented into our lives as the sword of the Spirit so that we are putting into our lives that word which the author of Hebrews describes as being so living and so active that it is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit. We have to interact with it. It's not a decoration. It is not a wish list. It is an activity, it is a discipline, it is a practice. Use it. Use it every single day. In this passage, we're called to be warriors. In other passages, we're called to be runners. In every passage, we're called to be victorious. And we do that by implementing the things God has already given us. So meet Jesus. Join us in this competition. Join us in this victory. Know Jesus. And those of us who know Jesus, then together we work and move and go forward. Victorious.
We have the best case scenario. We don't know how it all plays out, but we know we win. We win every single time. So outfit yourselves, equip yourselves, be prepared. Let's do it together and be a formidable force in the spiritual heavenlies for the things of God and the kingdom of God that is expanding and changing lives every single day.